do. So I was actually doing more sensitive jobs as a civilian than I was actually in the special forces. You know, so I was at prime ministers, presidents, there was royal families, UAE royal families, you know, asking me for advice or running sort of projects. So I was training the Kurdish special forces to fight ISIS. You know, each phone call was different. There was the World Cup, there was the Olympics. So I was learning so much about the industry, more on the... G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot to Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, you can call me Brad. In fact, you can call me whatever you want to call me. If you listen to the show, I'm a fan of you and I appreciate you. And let me tell you, today is, is one that I've been waiting for. We had to reschedule, which worked really well because I had COVID last week, but I've been absolutely hanging to chat to this lad because it's a very unique episode of the podcast. I've not had someone with his... Um, caliber of expertise and experience and rich life stories and experiences to share before. He is a special forces tier one operator. He was Royal Protection for Prince Harry. He's a two times world record holder. He's an accomplished author. He's a speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, from your home, your car or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only Mr. Dean Stott. Cheers, Brad. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me It's on. a pleasure. I'm, I'm so thankful to have you on the show here. I was you know, I was sitting, I'm a, I'm a fan of SAS Australia. So that's where I come across your story, right, is sitting there and you're always a little bit interested in, you know, the dudes that are standing there in the dark T-shirts, you know, jacked up, looking pretty serious. And you're thinking, I could hate to be one of those contestants right now. And you obviously being new to SAS Australia, I was quite interested to see a little bit of your story. And I searched you on Instagram and come across not just the fact that you're very accomplished in your career in the service, but mate, you've done a lot with your life. And I really mm. want to dive into that and sort of like pick that apart today for the audience. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like where did your journey begin? Um, you know, probably with my, with my family, my father was in the military, you know, I, I was brought up in an area full of soldiers. Um, but I'd never, Never really wanted to pursue that career. I actually always wanted to be a fireman as a young boy. I always wanted to be a fireman. I don't know whether my wife says I've got that hero syndrome. I like to help people or, or save people. So I, always, I wanted to do that. Uh, went through school and college. Uh, well, went through school, sorry, and started college. And my father used to take me to the South Coast to do surfing during the summer. And um, so during a college college uh, summer holidays which was supposed to be two weeks it ended up being six months I just stayed down there and just stayed in the water and that's where my sort of love for the water sort of uh, came from as a young boy and um, I decided this was about 1994 so there was a big recession at the time there was a big shortage of jobs I still didn't really at the age of 17 I, I was too young to apply for the fire brigade so I, I told my father I'd join the military um, and yeah he told me I'd last two minutes it probably wasn't the sort of motivation I expected probably sort of motivation you get from Ant Middleton but um no sort of ignored him anyway and just sort of just joined the military young age eight, uh, 17 and a half didn't really have any aspirations of special forces didn't really know much about the the military itself my father when he was in the military was the um the football manager and coach and player so he was as we would call a tracksuit soldier um went through basic training got through that and then soon realized actually that um, I was quite fit and I was competing with some of the uh, the bigger guys and I was sort of growing into myself as well. I was 67 kilos 
I'm five foot seven when I joined the military, buddy. A few years later, I was 90 kilos, you know, and, and five foot 11. I grew into the individual that I am today. But each time I did a course, I got physically and mentally stronger. And then I was just doing courses, commando course, para course, diver, PTI. And then my, my career was really funneling in one direction, and that was uh, the UK Special Forces. I know, like I listen to your book. So for anyone listening to this podcast or watching it today, um, Dean's got a book out. It's called Relentless and it's fantastic. I'm about an hour from the end. I'm more of a listener than a reader. Um, so yeah. I've, been, I've been chewing that up of a morning before I go for a run. And one of the things that really struck a chord with me in the book, which I loved is there was this mindset and I think something that was born within you, maybe a chip on your shoulder because your old man said you wouldn't last more than two minutes or maybe mm. it's just who you are at the core as a person, your DNA, but you really want to test yourself. And I think from what it sounds like in the book, you were never going to be happy with just being a tracksuit soldier, as you say. You always were going to have to test yourself for that highest level. Would that be a yeah. fair assessment? I think it's a fair assessment. You know, when I, my first year in the military, I ended up following my father's footpath. I was in Germany playing football myself, and I could see myself literally just following in his own footsteps rather than carving my own, my own path. Um, you know, I, I, I born into competitive family, you know, so competition was quite uh, key in our family. You know, we'd even argue even, even the Christmas day board games were, was, was competitive in our house. So that there was that competitive drive from my father, but then also, as you touched on there, there was a lot of times in my life where people have sort of said, Oh, you, you can't do that. You're not capable of doing that. And, and I just see that as a, as a challenge. You know, I don't, there's no point in arguing with them until you're blue in the face, you know, because you're never going to get anywhere. The only way you can prove them wrong is by actions. So yes, my father telling me that, you know, I, I went special boat service, not special air service. I was one of the first army candidates to do that as well. And again, told by the SES, what are you doing? Why you shouldn't be doing that? You know, you can't do that. And it's like, okay, there's no point in arguing. Six months later, came the first, one of the first army candidates to, to do that. So yeah, so I see that as a, almost a, a fire in the belly. It's like, you know, and, and also a personal challenge. It's like, well, go on then, let's see what we can do. And you just keep raising the bar then. And the people that do tell you that, are those who probably know, there's a lot I see about three groups of people in the world. There's those who will never be able to do it. And so they will give you their full support because it's like it's beyond anything they would even consider doing. So they will always support you. There's those that have big achievers in the world as well who are like, yeah, you know, do it. And they've, they've been in that position. And there's those who have the capabilities of doing it, but are more jealous of the fact that they haven't done it or they haven't found time to do it. And it's, it's them ones. They're the, the sort of naysayers. Um, and they're the and ones that's that in any to area, right? Exactly, yeah, any area. Yeah, you're true. You know, the, the thing that really strikes a chord with me there is I, I often hear people talk about the military or the services being a potential career path for maybe people who, who feel a little lost. That's something that I always heard as a kid, like, you know, if you're getting to the end of the school schooling system, uni doesn't look likely um, or you don't want to go into a trade maybe go to the services or maybe you lack a little bit of discipline or self-belief, go to the services. But I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on whether the military is something that can make a man or you sort of need to be a bit of a man and, and understand yourself before you go into the military. Because I can imagine it could either do great things for you or it could really break you down if you're not in a great place. 
Yeah, I think I think for the military, I'm very uh, very pro military. I think they can they they can make the man. Um, I think when you go in there, everyone comes in from different backgrounds and um, different ways of growing up. So everyone has that different level of resilience. Anyway, you know, when I grew up, you know, my parents split up when I was a young boy, and at the age of eight, I was in a homeless home in Moss Side in Manchester, which is the roughest estate in the whole of the UK. Um, so at a young age, I was fighting. So I built up this sort of resilience anyway, but Again, at the age of 17, didn't know what I was going to do in my life. My father then told me about the military. Um, he was in the Royal Engineers, so I could get a trade from them. But again, everyone has this perception in the military is that um, they're not so bright individual. But I tell you what, you get there's so many other takeaway points now looking back from my time in the military. And it wasn't the trades and everything else. You know, the confidence of being able to talk in front of you know, hundreds or thousands of people and you know, nowadays with the, the birth of technology a lot of people are being more socially distant and uncomfortable talking in, in groups whereas you know I, I came away I was a ski instructor I was a yacht master I was a dive master there was all these other skill sets I never knew that I could get from my time in the military but what I did get I think the biggest one was that sort of confidence um, that self-confidence as well and as you've rightly touched on there is there's a lot of guys and girls in the military who haven't had great beginnings and they see the military as, a, as their new family. Some of them haven't come from broken homes. And when you do join the military, you've almost formed this bond, which is very hard to describe unless you are in the military. You know, they talk about camaraderie and things like that, but there is, is that, that unique bond. And I think that's what's, uh, what's great about the military is that you feel like you're part of, part of something, you're part of a team. Yeah, I can only imagine how powerful that would be. I want to talk about going through special forces selection and being involved in some of those training courses. It obviously takes some physical ability, right? Like you have to be fit, you have to be capable. But I think as it does for most things in life that are a physical um, challenge or a real test, it requires probably more mental strength than anything. Yeah. Talk to us about some of those selections and maybe what's the hardest thing that you've, you've been selected for? Um, yeah, so again, the great thing about the military as well, you're not the first person to do it. So you see those going before you, you see your peers going on the courses, either passing or failing, and you sort of learn. I was, I was like a sponge I was when I was in the military. I was just learning from everyone. You know, um, now I did my commando course as a, a young boy. I was 18 when I did my commando course. Um, so already had the Green Beret. But a year later, I joined the Re reconnaissance troops. So I was getting... I was building up that confidence quite, quite um, when I was quite young, but um, but yeah, I I I was I wanted to do selection a lot younger, and people were like you're not ready yet, you're not ready, and I'm glad they said that to me because you are, you know, you do think you're indestructible and you, you can run uh, run a thousand miles, but as you get older, you get a bit more wiser as well um, and things like that. So I and you and you learn more about your body as well. Um, you know, you talked about the importance of physical and mental fitness. Yeah, and I do believe mental is has, has more percentage over the physical. But with these sort of types of courses as well, it's, it's trying to stay away from injury. Now, that, that's one of the hardest things. I generally believe that anyone can pass. We have the hills phase on selection, which is the physical element, the first month, running up and down the mountains with Bergens. I generally believe that most people in the military can pass that, you know, with the right mindset, a little bit of training. But... No, you lose 50% of them because of injuries. So you as an individual, when you're doing these courses, you know, you, you know what your 
you know, my, my nemesis was my left ankle. I must have snapped my ankle twice. So I, even though I didn't go and I was taping it up all the time. But you, you've heard about Special Forces. You've heard about the Commandos, the Paris. Actually, one of the hardest courses for me was the military diving course. Uh, I ended up becoming a, a senior dive instructor there myself. And it was. It was a, a course I underestimated on how physically and, and mentally demanding it was as well. Because not only... It's not just the physical soldier and being able to you know, go through the fitness. You also had to do with the, 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 the physics, the laws and physics of diving as well. Um, so It's actually interesting to hear you say that because being a surfer, you would think very comfortable in the water, right? But I guess like yeah. you said, when all of a sudden it's not just you controlling your body, it's controlling the physics and, and also the ocean, man, like. Yeah. And, and the sea, it's just mother nature is powerful. And it, like you said, at those depths, it demands an understanding that takes a lot of time. Yeah. And they, and they, they beast you because you get extra money for being a diver. It's not easily given to you. They, they will just keep beasting you. I remember the first, the second week, you've got a thing called exercise hard fin. You start in the morning with a big a two hour run. And then you do an eight hour dive. You literally go in and you just keep diving. And then when you run out of gas, you come back up. And then, and then you go back in on this, uh, this jack stay until you've done eight hours total. And then once you've done that, you then swap your partner. He's then doing it. And, you know, that's the start of the week. And it just basically just move, moving dive set, dive sites, setting up, because all dive equipment's heavy as well, um, yeah. as well. So it was more the, it was more the, the fatigue on, on that course. And, you know, when about boring the, the listeners, you know, we talk about saturation of the body, you know, with gases, actually, the less fat you have in your body, the less less uh, it's going to saturate. So, so the instructor's um, way of getting around being able to be you is that you need to minimize any fat on your body. <laughs> so, but they actually, I think, I think in historically they lost a couple of guys actually got killed on the course. They had them running in their wetsuits and didn't vent them off, and they just in their dry suits, sorry, and they they boiled in their bag, they died. Yeah, so it's a it's a physical course, but. It's not well known compared to the others, but for me, that was, um, that was, that was a, a game changer. Talk, talk to me about that quickly, because obviously you hear stories like that before you go into one of these courses, you know, it's like anything, you hear the stories of worst case scenarios, you yeah. can't help but have that little bit of, I guess, thought in the back of your head that, well, that could be me. Like, how yeah. does that feel? Does it diminish your confidence a little bit or... Well, you like to you like to think if you, yeah you're right though you you go into a scenario and you always think worst case scenario what's the worst thing that can happen to me but I, I generally believe it's going to happen it's going to happen but I like to trust the system you know what what we do in the military which is great I, I call it the hot debrief you know we used to do a lot in the special forces it was like you know what works what didn't work and if we're going to do again do it again what would we do differently so that scenario I've talked about two divers that died. You know, what would the fallout from that? There would have been obviously an investigation and they'd be like, well, mm. what were they doing? You know, what didn't work? And if we were going to do that, what would we do differently? So the military do learn from those mistakes. Yes, you hear the horror stories and there's certain things that you have your control, but you need to trust the system and trust that they, they've got your, your best interests. Um, but yeah, but I think if you, if you live like that, you always think worst case scenario, you're not going to do anything. You know, I mean, you know, you know, you, you, you would never, you know, if you just believed everything you saw on Google or on the news, you'd never leave the house. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. For sure. Talk to me about the paracourse, jumping out of planes. You know, yeah, what's, what's so, that like? How, how comfortable do you get with the idea of free falling out of the sky? 
And does it so get weirdly my, comfortable? You, I think you get used to it. I did my, my basic para course not long after I've done my commander course. So when I was about 20 years old, I was a young lad. And, and um, it's a static line one. It's low-level parachute. And we, we, I think because of the weather's not so great in the UK, we're, you know, we have a four-week course. And the first two weeks is just ground training. You just repeat yourself, repeat yourself. And it's like, so by the time you get into the plane, you're just like, ah, just get me out. You know, and I just want to get out. You know, it's not a natural uh, position to be throwing yourself out of an aircraft. But again, you know, one of the things I learned from my time in the military is you have to trust the kit. You have to trust the kit and equipment. And again, you can't, you can't be thinking about worst case scenario. Yes, you've heard about fatalities and things like that, but you just need to trust trust the equipment. And majority of times, the majority of the fatalities within, especially within the military on training, isn't through equipment failure. It's through um, human failure. No, the individual's messed up. Um, you know what I mean? So actually, yes, there may have been a death, but they probably didn't do the right right procedures so yeah and that's why the military are great at repeating 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 so it is almost second nature you're naturally going through the drills without even thinking about it and i know was i i've had a couple of malfunctions when i was in uh parachuting you know and had to cut away and yeah just trust that the, the reserve opens you know went through the process and i'm still here to tell the story Mate, it's one of those things that for me, I, I'm fine with heights, but the idea of falling from heights scares the fuck out of me. Oh, really? And I was in, where was I? I was in Port Douglas at the start of the year. And I thought I might do a jump while I'm up there. Like I thought jumping over the, the barrier reef would be amazing. And I just couldn't organize because it's from Cairns to Port Douglas is an hour to try and organize like transport back to get the cans that morning because i wanted to do it at sunrise i thought if you do it at sunrise it'd be amazing i just couldn't get transport no one would take me none of the coach oh, yeah. services open none of the ubers would go that early and yeah. i was like i think they've, it's almost like the universe gave me a little out there <laughs> i think i'm yeah, like yeah, in wollongong yeah there's a lot of guys there's a lot of guys in the ministry who don't like hikes but they they jump because, you know, sometimes when you're jumping, it's different from likes of rock climbing. When You know, I tend to find when you're on the side of a cliff looking down, you know, that's more worrying than actually probably about 15,000, 20,000 feet. Because at least at 15,000, 20,000 feet, I've got more time. I've got more time. Than you can I barely have. see the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of guys that don't like jumping, but they, they don't want to let the team down. And, you know, we have the thing in the military as well, especially in the paras, with the paras, if you refuse to jump, you get, um, you get fined, as in the military. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a discipline. It's a disciplinary um, action. So you just do it anyway. Just jump. Yeah, for sure. Close, your, close your eyes. Just close your eyes. Count to three. Take a leap. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me about your first time serving overseas. What was that like in, in terms of shifting your perspective on the world that we live in, in the Western world, and I guess the more modern society? And what did it teach you about not only the world, but yourself? Mm, so I, I ended up in recce troop commandos. And my first trip overseas um, on tour was to Kosovo, it was in the Balkans in 99. And that was the first operational tour the recce troops since the Falklands and we're on the 40th anniversary this year of the Falklands so you know there was about a 20 27 year period um so for us although it wasn't um it wasn't uh fighting it was, it was more peacekeeping but it really gives us an an, uh, an insight into into what you know genocide there's a lot of genocide going on and things like that so it really opened our eyes especially my eyes to 
more about the, the political and the geographical structure. People still arguing over land from hundreds of years ago. Um, but for us, you know, everything we trained for, we were now putting into practice. We're working on the border in OPs. Um, but like I said, that wasn't a um, that wasn't a firefighting um, tour. But then when 9-11 happened, yeah, everything changed. The whole world, of the special, especially in the, the world of special forces, everything, the whole dynamic changed completely. Um, and everything that we'd not dreamed about, but we trained for, and, you know, worst case scenario was now about to come to head. We were about to put everything we were training to in, into practice, practice for real. So guys that were coming off special forces we're literally going straight onto the ground and doing operations. Um, whereas our sort of predecessors, there'd been a period of, you know, a, a long period of, of nothing really. Um, yeah, to all of sure. a sudden really ticking all the boxes in a short period. You know, I, I, when I joined, you know, in a short period of time, I did the first ever operational jump for the SBS in Afghanistan. We did operational jumps doing hostage rescues. You know, we're, diet, we're doing operational diet. We're doing everything in a short period, whereas our predecessors before could have done 15, 20 years and not even done one of them. Uh, and we were getting it in such a short period. But for us, it was, it was what, we, what we trained for. Um, but yeah, the tempo, the tempo of operations just, just went tenfold. And it got to a point where really like, yeah, it's great, but it'd be nice to at least get a week off to go to the dentist or something. Yeah, of course. This is a silly question because I know you'll have an answer and I know you'll remember it quite vividly, but can you remember exactly where you were and what your thoughts were when 9-11 happened and you were hearing that news? Yeah, so I was um, I was in, in, uh, in Recruit in the 5-9 Commandos in North Devon and I'd literally just landed that morning from Cyprus. So I'd just been over to Cyprus for a two-week um, football competition um during the during the summer of cyprus it was like um ayanapa and, and places like which are big tourist resorts we were just there for two two weeks playing football so i had a great two weeks there came back and we were about to deploy to oman a week later there was an exercise called exercise safe surreal which is a huge um huge exercise with quite a few big nations you know the us and and a lot of the european nations so they were going out to we were all about to go out to oman my old sergeant major, he he was down at the dive school and he rang me and said, one of the students has just failed his entrance test for his advanced diving course, which start, started this morning. So he said, can you be down here tomorrow? And for me, it was like brilliant because you do your basic diving course, you advance and then you dive in supervisors. But each course incrementally gets more pay. It's about a 10 week course. So I was like, ah, yeah, perfect. But I thought, well, I'm not going to go out to the desert and just sit on this, on this exercise. At least I'm, I'm progressing in my career. So I was packing my kit that afternoon. And then one of the lads comes in. He said, oh, you need to come see this. And we went into the, the squadron HQ. We had a cinema room. We went in and, and, they, and they literally had it all on the, on the big screen then. And you're just like, ah, oh, wow. Um, but for me, I'd already committed to go on a dive course. And I was thinking, oh, my God, they're all going to go from Oman straight to Afghanistan. It's going to be I'm going to miss the war and things like that. But, you know, years later, we're still in Afghanistan. Be careful what you wish for, what you would still say. So, um, but yeah, but I always remember, I remember that. And then that evening, driving from Devon down to Portsmouth. And it, as you know, it was all over the, all over the news. Um, so, yeah, everyone will remember where they were that day. I'm really curious as to, you know, you hear about these situations and I've listened to your book now or, or near about, 
I read Ant Middleton's book um, a little bit earlier in the year. And I listened to a lot of Jocko Willink because a guy who's never been in the military, I, I quite like listening to Jocko. He's mm. quite a smart mind. And I listen to people who share these experiences and these times in service and over in the Middle East and or wherever they've served. And it's quite interesting listening to it and imagining how someone could come out of that and be the same human being, not be affected mm. by it in the way that you think or, or maybe the way that you see the world. Do you think it changed mm. you at all? For the better um, or the worse, or uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, everyone's unique, and in, in, like I said, there's um, you know, yes, there's some that change completely. You know, it, we used to tend to find that the guys that really suffered post-traumatic stress, it wasn't individuals; it was squadrons. So if it was a squadron, it meant it was during a certain tour, and some tours were were more difficult than others. You know, if you were, you know, as we say, in the summer, it was it was um, you know, that was fighting season because they're out. And then during the winter, they're, they're, you know, they're not coming out to fight. So it all depended on what tours you were on and what, and what you saw and also on the, on the individuals. But, um, you know, I, did, I worked a lot in the, the mental health arena, actually having left the military. And strange, uh, interesting um, uh, fact is that 75% of those who had post-traumatic stress within the military had nothing to do with the time in the military. It's actually from their childhood. And it's just triggers... Wow from something in the military. So the problem you have is everyone just assumes, especially like doctors and, and stuff like that, well, you're in the military and you've got something, you know, you, you're going through depression, you, you have post-traumatic stress. And actually it wasn't, you know, a lot of the guys, uh, especially when they, they're getting out, it's, it's a change in environment, having to start all over again. Some of them may be getting divorced, but they were quite quick to throw the post-traumatic stress when actually, you know, a lot of the guys dealt with it quite well. That, that's interesting. And I, I remember reading in your book or listening to in your book, you meeting a rugby player and having quite a lot in common with him, a Scottish fellow, because mm. you were talking about once out of the service or for them once out of the game and you don't have like your team environment anymore. You've known something for so long. It's been the biggest part of your life to yeah. then not have that and feel almost a little bit isolated and like there's no real purpose um, mm. for a lot of people is probably what causes most of the issue. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so Fraser Brown you're talking about is a Scottish um, Scottish prop, and um, yeah, what it was is so your listeners know I, I got injured out of special forces after 16 years. I had a parachute and accident, so I didn't plan on leaving the military. My career was cut short, and and so yeah, when I left, I'd gone from you know where I got to in the military was because of my sort of physical robustness um, and things like that. I, I now couldn't even run a hundred meters without my leg being in pain, but I was going through what is known as an identity crisis, as you touched on. And it's like, you know, I've worked in it. I was, I knew what I was doing day, day in, day out. I was working in a tight knit team. You know, all of us, um, we had our own goals. We knew what we're doing for the next two years. So where do I now fit in society? And it's very similar to, for example, maybe um, there's a lot of synergies from special forces and professional sports people because you spend your career trying to get, be the best you can be at the top of your game. And then all of a sudden, an injury, you know, you, your friends are going off to play in the Ashes or, or, or the Rugby World Cup and you're off to physio. You know what I mean? And you're no longer part of that, that, uh, that unit. So, yes, but it's not just in the, in the military and it's not just in sport. It could be in any sort of arena as well, you know, being part belonging of a team and then on your own of course yeah 
So for you, you, I remember reading in the book and, you know, there was a period there where you served in private security, which yeah. is actually, for me, really interesting reading. There's some amazing operations in there and it sounds yeah. like it was a very testing time, probably more so of your patients in many cases. Mm. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so as we touched on, I, I got injured out and, and, you know, I didn't really plan on leaving the military. So I did you know, normally when guys leave, they have a two-year build-up period and they, you know, to start transitioning. Um, I was like straight out, you know, also to put, add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant at the time. So, you know, from my head was like, right, am I going to be able to raise, um, support my family? So within 48 hours, I was out in Libya uh, during the Arab Spring. And a lot of these larger security companies were charging six, seven-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans. And actually, when you, when you scrape the surface, there was nothing in place. So I was trying to find a niche within the industry. You know, a lot of my friends or ex-SBS were, were cleaning up on the east coast of Africa with piracy. You know, that was at its, at its peak. So I didn't want to start, I didn't want to be competing with them in the market. So I, uh, I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and designed my own evacuation plans and sold them to the oil and gas sector. And then when people tell you, know, when you tell people without sounding like Liam Neeson, you know, working in security industry, it's our natural um, step forward for us. Um, I, I um, every job, every phone call I got, it was a different job. So I was actually learning so much about the security uh, arena. Um, and also because you're not in the military anymore, you're not governed or restricted what you can and can't do. So I was actually doing more sensitive jobs as a civilian than I was actually in the special forces, you know, so I was at prime ministers, presidents, there was Royal families, UAE Royal families, you know, asking me for advice or running sort of projects. So I was training the Kurdish special forces to fight ISIS. You know, each phone call was different as the world cup, there was the Olympics. So I was learning so much about the industry, more on the, the corporate side. Um, uh, but what everyone has uh, perception of special forces is all about Hollywood, you know, you know, blowing in walls, you know, killing the enemy. And actually, we're, that's 25% of what we do. And that's, you know, that's our fallback. Should everything go wrong, we have that as, a, um, as, a, as an ace card. But 50% of what we do is support and influence its hearts and minds. It's understanding the demographics, the politics, the tribal influences in these countries. And so that's where my sort of skill sets um, really progressed, progressed there. And, um, yeah, 2012, when the American ambassador got killed in Benghazi, a movie called 13 hours i single-handedly got an oil company eight eight engineers from benghazi to tripoli and then two years later you know single-handedly evacuated the canadian embassy out of libya on my own 18 military and four diplomats but again it sounds very sexy in hollywood it was just understanding the demographics the politics speaking to the right tribal leaders and things like that so i then soon got a name within the industry of being one of the top guys yeah, and look, understandably, there's some great stories about that in the book, Relentless. And, more. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I bet. And the one thing that probably impressed me the most about all of it is, like you just touched on there, having to understand the political landscape and the demographics of the area you're in. How much research does that require pre-operation or is it more learning on the ground in the first couple of weeks you're there? Yeah, you can get so much from the internet, which will help you, but literally boots on the ground, being there, being immersed in that environment and understanding the atmospherics, always having a good fixer. So each country had a really good fixer, someone who was quite well connected and who used to get fingers. And they used to, I used to sit down with them and they used to tell me 
you know, all all the stories and the history and things like that. But um, but again, you know, because you're a civilian, you don't have that fallback of, you know, 30 guys from the squadron, two CH-47s and air cover and things like that. So you have to get it right because, you know, no one's coming to get you. So so you you did listen more than you did when you were in the military. You know, when you're in the military, you're just told where you're going and what mission you're going on. When you're when you're out there, you sort of see two sides of the story. Captain of your own ship, right? Exactly. Yeah. The one thing that was probably most relatable for me in the whole book, and and the thing that I've really enjoyed listening to is the Guinness World Record. You know, oh, yeah. the the cycle ride. And for me, it for me it stood out because. On a much smaller scale, I've challenged myself a little bit in the endurance world over the course of the last two years, and there's so much benefit to it more mentally, I think, than physically, if anything. And for me, it was sort of probably similar to you where it was very foreign to me when I threw myself into the challenge. And, you know, I was talking to my old man this morning. We went for a run together, and he said, who you got on today? And I said, I've got this fellow, Dean Stott, you know, massive military background, special forces guy. I said, but probably the most impressive thing to me is, you know, he broke the Guinness World Record for cycling across the Pan Am Highway um, in the in the fastest time, you know, 99 days, I believe it was, if I got that correct. Yeah. And I said, but he wasn't a cyclist. Yeah, my, yeah. my old man was like, fuck, that's pretty impressive. So talk to us yeah. about that. Obviously, that was something, you know, I remember reading, listening to the book and Alana, your wife said, hey, here's a Guinness World um, Book of World Records. Pick mm. something because you need a new goal. You need something to strive for. Yeah, well, I just come back. I just finished evacuating the Canadian embassy, and, and uh, Alana. This is probably the second period in my life where the pin dropped. That I was probably going through a bit of a, um, some issues mentally. So my wife had sort of highlighted that I'd only been home twenty-one days in the three hundred and sixty-five day calendar. So I was literally, I was totally disconnected from society. I was working in Yemen, Somalia, Libya, all, all on my own. I work on my own as well. I don't work with teams. So it's easier to look after myself than it is to look after six or eight guys and all the, all the welfare that come with it. And so I was taking risks that I shouldn't have been taking and, and soon realised actually I was trying to match the adrenaline rush I had when I was still in the Special Forces without coming to terms with the fact that I left. So there was, something had to change. And Chapter 16 in the book, as you know, is called Dead or Divorced. So this was the stage we're at at this point. So my injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wasted. So I neglected my own sort of physical well-being as well because I've been so immersed in just getting work and, and doing all these jobs and so I just bought a push bike off Amazon and bought some Batman Lycra thinking it was cool and my wife was a property developer and said look you know come work with me cycle to and from the office only about eight miles but straight away just a bit of cardiovascular fitness you know breathing in through the lungs I felt almost there was a weight off my shoulders and so I was in these architects and planners meetings I was just bored and my wife could see it and she's like right you need to do something and I said well you know it's my 40th birthday next month I need to leave a legacy I've always fancied doing a world record and she said well what in and I said well cycling seems to be good because it wasn't hampering my knee you see my leg it wasn't hurting my leg and I knew that I knew mentally I had mental robustness to do endurance challenges because I had been tested for my time in, in the military I just needed to find a sport which wasn't going to be going to be hampering so i said well cycling and my wife then found the world's longest road which runs from uh, the southern point of argentina to northern alaska so fourteen thousand miles so the cur- because of the curvature of the earth it's equivalent to cycling from sydney to london and then another four thousand miles 
Holy you know, shit. it meant 4,000 on top of that. So I thought, having only cycled 20 miles at this point, and it sounds quite arrogant. I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. You know, because for me, it was like, you know, it's a perfect challenge. There's, there's countries I've never been to before. There's all the different temperatures. You know, yes, I've operated in the military then, but I've not done it on the bike. And so, yeah, the world record at the time was 117 days when I applied for it. And then six weeks later, Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful on your application. So for me, I had a target. And, and to do the world record was, was my own sort of challenge. So I had something to train for because you could just go do it anyway. And it's still a great achievement. Uh, but it meant I had something to train for. And then we... Uh, I did a lot in the um, military charity sector as well when I left the military. You know, I was an ambassador for the SBS Association, ambassador for the, the British Legion, which is the UK's largest and oldest military charity. So obviously, you know that Prince Harry and I know each other. So I, I messaged him and I told him about me doing this. And I, I said, what campaign should we do it for? And he was about to launch a campaign with his brother and Kate called Heads Together on mental health. And so, yeah, I was I was aware about mental health in the military, which we've touched on already on this, this podcast, but I wasn't aware how big it was throughout the whole of society, away from the military. You know, postnatal depression, young children, teenagers, all the way through to, to adults, men and women. And, it, you know, it, um, mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, where you're from in the world, everyone suffers. So I thought, perfect, that's the challenge for this, uh, or that's the campaign message. So trained for a year, set a target of a million pounds. My wife sort of ran the whole backgrounds and stuff like that so I could just focus on the on the training. And, yes, yeah, set off a year later and, um, yeah, it was successful. It took 10 days off the South America world records and took 17 days off the main world record. Yeah, 19, that became the first man in history to do it under 100 days, which... Um, which pissed off a lot of people in the cycling community because they're like, well, who's this, who's this 41-year-old man who, who weighs about 90 kilos? I started weighing 90 kilos. I finished at 78. But I just took, you know, I didn't know much about cycling when I started, but I knew that having a good plan, you know, from my time in the military, in, in the private security sector, if you have a good plan, you know, then, you know, you're halfway there and then mentally there's the other half. I love that and I love hearing it. And for me, I've done all my endurance stuff for charity and it's mm. maybe more fulfilling than actually finishing it yourself. Yeah. Like knowing that you've done it for the greater good of people who really need it is the thing that mm. kind of gives you that motivation. Something that I learned, like when I started running, like I, I'd maybe done four or five K runs in about seven years mm. and I was like, okay, I'm going to run a marathon. And I was doing mine with, I decided to do it while I had bleeding lungs in hospital. So my doctors were few because they were like, mate, it's not a good idea. But Mm. I think similar to what you said earlier, that chip on your shoulder of, no, you're probably not going to be able to do it. This is going to be a bad idea. Kind of motivates you to go, well, watch me. But then knowing I was doing it for the cause, which is Cystic Fibrosis Australia, which is a, you know, a condition that I live with. So I'm really tightly, you know, like it's really close to my heart. It means a lot. It Mm. just it's purpose fuels progress. Like if you're doing it for a reason bigger than yourself, you almost feel like you can't be stopped. You feel invincible. And I can imagine that for you being um, who you are and having the experiences that you've had in the military and in the services, that mental strength, you would have drawn Mm. into that and gone back to that so many occasions. Yeah. Yeah. There there was a, there was a lot of things I I was drawing from, from my experiences before. And, And when you touched on their purpose as well is, 
So for me, the world record was my objective and I didn't have to do it. The, the, the money, the one million pounds, we you know we raised $1.3 million in the end, um, as well, which, which, was, which was huge. But for me, it was like, you know, when it, when it were in those dark sort of places, I sort of, you know, I could look at, back at all the charities that were raising money for, you know, for, for example, there was 11 charities and one of them, for example, um, Place to Be, which um, is mental health in schools. So I knew that the money I was raising for them um, the £100,000 would enable 14,000 children to go speak to people or specialists within the school. So I converted that into miles. So I thought, well, every mile I'm on this bike, a young child is going to do that. So there's always those little trick, ways of tricking the mind if, you, if you're struggling or, or, or feeling yeah. hard. Um, but we, we had a documentary team come with us as well. You know, we documented it and we're going to, you know, it's going to add one day with a couple of other challenges. And, you know, they were like, look, you're showing no emotion. It's like a military operation and you know I was very fortunate I wasn't um I wasn't under pressure from my sponsors I wasn't under pressure from the charities you know they're like you know we think it's a great campaign great cause you know do your best where I put myself under pressure my my personal sort of pressure was I told the world that the ethos of the special forces is the unrelenting pursuit of excellence and so I always said, well, how does it look to the world if I don't complete this challenge? So I put myself under my own pressure uh, by announcing that. And, and what it meant for me was I had to do this challenge so I could go back to the bars and pool in Hereford and hold my head high without getting absolutely savaged by the guys. But, um, yeah, I was quite lucky. But I think after the first week, you've obviously got this, this past this bit with the, the strong winds. You know, the first week yeah. I was... Um, now, the wheel record was 117 days, and I was aiming for 110. It wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. It's because should there be anything out of our control, like natural disasters, coups in countries, and maybe some third-party influence, it wasn't, and we encountered that, it wasn't eaten into my world record. It was eaten into that week that I'd factored for. So by the end of the first week, which was the strong winds, after that, everything was in my favor. I was 39 miles behind target, but my target was still a week ahead of the world record. So from that day on, I was always ahead. So I never doubted that I wasn't going to do it. You know what I mean? So I was always in quite a good headspace. But I see people, you know, I, I break it down into manageable bite, manageable bite sizes. I don't look at 14,000 miles. I look at 14 countries, break the countries into, into, um, into days and break the days into stages. So for me, it was four, four stages. It was on my bike in the morning after breakfast, cycle as fast as I could for two hours, get off 30 minutes, have food and water. I mean, I just look at the next stage. I wouldn't look at tomorrow afternoon or what we're doing next week when we get into Chile or Peru. You know, I just, so for me, mentally, all I was doing was four training rides a day. And before you know it, you've done a day, you've done a week, you've done a country, you've done a world record, and then you start chipping away. So that's how I, that's how I sort of dealt with it, dealt with it mentally. So it never sort of overwhelmed me. Um, and I never sort of doubted myself as well. I, we, we had the welcome back party. We had the wheels down ball. We were planning that before I even went off. You know, we had raised £70,000 at an event in Aberdeen where we lived, and £50,000 of that was a deposit for the Hilton Hotel for when we came back. So even before I'd set off, we were already planning in the, the big welcome back party. So a good friend of mine, Amanda, who was the events um, coordinator, she kept saying, you know, what is the contingency? And I never used to answer her. And my wife would answer and she said, well, the contingency is we go to Dean's funeral. 
But um, when I came back, having completed it with two world records and you know raising so much uh, money for charity, I said to her, the reason I didn't answer you was because if I knew we had a contingency, when things got hard, you naturally would take that route. So for me, there was no contingency other than completing it. So I was sort of blocking the outs. So a lot of people, yeah. if they realize there's an easy way out, they'll take that easy route. But if they realize there's actually no easy way out and the only way is forward, then yeah, there's no option. And that's what I did. I, I didn't have a contingency other than completing it. I, I love that. And that's something that I found real value in myself. Like you said, that that pers- personal pressure you kind of put on yourself, it's not from anyone else. Like the charity that I work with, CF Australia, they were like, mate, just what you're doing and the money we've raised is amazing enough. Like even if you didn't run it, it's done its, you know, it's done yep. its job. It's raised money. It's raised awareness. But for me, I was like, the minute that I started getting messages from parents who were like, you know, you're a role model for our kids now, I was like, I can't not finish this. And <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was a month out and I had three really bad bleeds in my lungs. And I was lying in hospital and I just thought this would be a great, like, and I'd been for a 30K the week before and it was fucking tough. Yeah, and I remember yeah. thinking this would be a great excuse. And I thought, oh, I could not do this. I'd feel terrible. Like if I pulled out, I'd feel like, like I'd let so many people down. And yeah. it was the best feeling in the world, crossing the finish line and achieving something that you've set out to. It mm. gives you a real sense of your own resilience and your strength as well. And yeah. that's what I've recommended to everyone that I've, everyone that's asked me about what the marathon done for me, it's less about the physical nature, but give, it gives you a sense of belief in achieving the things you set out to in life. And you feel like yeah. I don't have to just be average. I can try to be better than that. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the most valuable thing you would have found in yourself throughout all these experiences. And I can imagine sitting down and actually writing your book and reflecting mm. on the life that you live, that would have been a cool experience. Yeah, I think the bike ride, you know, when you read the book, as you, you're nearly there now, it's, you know, it's all those lessons before. You know, I, I, I have a phrase I use on the essay, you can't be experienced without experiences. So it's all those life lessons I've taken, which then enable me to do the bike ride. Yes, I wasn't a cyclist. Now, I did, don't get me wrong, after a year's training, I was, a, I was quite a good cyclist in the end. But it was all those... You know, a couple of things I was really proud of was, um, you know, I'd spoken to the previous record holders. They all started in Alaska and finished in Argentina. But all their issues were in South and Central America. So one of the, I just turned on its head. I was like, well, let's do it the other way around. So having the confidence to say, well, no, and that's from my time before um, in the military. Let's, let's address those issues early. Let's get them out of the way. But as you know, in the book, you know, every time I hit my objective and I was cruising, the objective then kept moving. Um, There's things that you can't control. So as, as I touched on, I took 10 days off the South America world record, got into North America, day 17. I was 14 days ahead. I was like, perfect. You know, my wife then rings me and tells me invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding, which changes the dynamics. So 14, you know, 10 minutes, 10 minutes before, I'm 14 days ahead. As I come off the phone, I'm now a day behind. You know, so it doesn't matter what you've done. So, but well... And that's where this sort of the military mindset comes in. Just react to the situation on the ground in front of you and just change the way things were operating. Now, I changed my cycling. I'd cycle through the night as well. I had the luxury of being able to do that because I was now in North America. So, so yeah, I think that, that was one of the things that I didn't, you know, yes, I was testing myself physically, but I was also testing how I react to situations and, and the planning as well. Yes, yeah, so it was a military operation. 
What do you think would be the most surreal experience on that ride? Like I can imagine you crossing some serious landscapes and stuff that probably blows your mind thinking back to mm-hmm. where you were in the world at the time and, and mate, the world's beautiful. It's incredible. Like, oh, you know, yeah. anyone who has the opportunity to travel through those areas would know, but for yeah. you, what was the most surreal experience where you had to pinch yourself a little bit? Yeah, so for me, it was one of those ones now. I'm so glad we got it on a documentary so I can sort of see some of the areas I went to because I was just so fixated on the challenge. You know, it was 99 days, but there's probably only about 10 days that I really remember that, that stand out, you know, because I was just so fixated. It was literally objective, objective. Did I hit my target for today? What's the next target? And I didn't, wasn't really taken in everything that was around me but um you know you got from you know bottom of argentina where um you know the bottom of the earth as they say it was just so windy but i the key one to me was when i crossed from argentina into chile because that was my first country done so that was a big a big boost um for me the atacama desert in chile is the driest desert. it was 47 degrees centigrade with no shade for a week you know so i always remember a couple Days, a couple of days on that you know the biggest climb on the tour de france is between 20 and 21 kilometers and my biggest climb was 67 kilometers from sea level to four and a half thousand meters so literally everything was just grand it was so big so obviously breaking the world record in, in cartagena in colombia was a big one um for me but then after that it was literally it was just certain days i always remember the phone call you know because i was like ah, Perfect. We're in Texas now. We're in North America. Everyone speaks my language. You know, we, you know the culinary options are a lot better. But yeah, but then the 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 the, the new record I had to aim for, you know, was there in front of me. So um, so yeah, I I, I always say to, I say to people now when they're doing these challenges as well is try and enjoy it. Try it. and it's easier said than done. You know, it's easier said than done. If you've got a if you're doing it for a world record and target, you just you're just fixated on numbers. That's all you're fixated. I was fixated on numbers, windy TV on my phone to see what the winds were doing, and just knowing where I was sleeping that night. I wasn't worried about. I wasn't really taking in the grand scenery. You know, one thing that you've touched on a lot throughout this podcast is with the military experiences. Um, I guess that that mental stress that comes when you're out of it, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. now. It's almost like they say one thing that people said to me about the marathon is don't get the marathon blues. Don't attach so much dopamine to the achievement of crossing the finish line on event day that you Mm. leave and you feel like you've got to go and do that again or more to get that same sense of fulfillment. And Mm. how important do you think it is for people listening or watching on to, I guess, learn to intelligently attach dopamine or that sense of achievement to the little everyday tasks that get you closer to the goal? as opposed yeah. to just setting your sights on the big day and putting so much hope and expectation on that. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's the same with my challenge. I had to sort of, you know, I knew that I was going to go into depression when it was all finished, you know, don't yeah. get so. And the problem I had is when I'd finished, I was like, right, what's next? I literally was like, what's the next challenge? It's like, <clears throat> as you said, you need to appreciate what you've done. But I think as individuals, you know, one of the analogies I have is you, your body your body is like a flowing river. You know what I mean? It needs to keep moving. As soon as it gets stagnant, like a pond, it has disease. But so, yes, keep moving, but you need to control the flow. Like my flow is like full on. Uh, whereas actually, you know, it's like I could go do a century ride. And that's quite a big achievement in itself. Because I think you always need to have something to be 
aspiring for or to training for. But don't always try and, you know, exceed what you've just done. You know what I mean? Because that's the problem I had. I, I chose the world's longest road as a non-cyclist and I mean, achieved the world record. How am I going to beat that now? You know, so, but luckily for me, my sport, I, 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 I dip my toe in that and I'll try and I'll try another sport. But yeah, I think for those, you know, as you, you touched on there, you know, appreciate what you've done. Don't rush because you do. Once you get that high, you're like, I want that high again. You know what I mean? And it's like, what, what can I train for next? And um, yeah, just appreciate what you've done. And, and it doesn't have to be as big as what you've done as well because everyone's unique. You know, I mean, for me, you know, doing that bike ride, you know, yes, it took it out of me. But could I do it again? Yes, I could do it again. Could I go faster? Probably if I knew, you know, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that, you know. Um, but yeah, that's one thing I wish I I had done more is appreciate what I, what I'd done before I just started chopping off about the next one. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've been much the same. And for me this year, I'll, I'm six weeks away from the marathon I was supposed to run, but yeah. injuries galore this year. The Achilles has given me issues, yeah. and I, mate, it was that hard for me to make the decision not to run like I had to go away for a week and just think about it because I was so in my head like if you don't do this mm. you know like who, who are you like yeah. outside of conquering these things who are you and it took me a while to figure out well sometimes you got to live to fight another day yeah like you said it's almost you get that hero complex about yourself where you're like I have to do this yeah. and without it I'm not a hero yeah, but that's that self-induced pressure you touched on. You think you're letting other people down, and in fact, you're probably not. It's just you thinking that as well. And I, and I have no doubt, once you made that decision, you felt a huge weight off your shoulders because you, you, you you'd put yourself under that pressure, you know. So, and as you, right, as, yeah, as you rightly said, you know, come back, fight another day, and, and, and probably do a better time. 100%. That's the goal anyways. Yeah. Talk yeah. to me about, you know, in, we've just been in the spirit of, actually relishing in your achievements but i've got no mm. doubt that there's a few more goals left on your checklist yeah what are some of the things that you want to conquer now um with the rest of your time here on earth so so for me i you know obviously now i need to spend more time as a father uh, as well you know so i want to spend more time with my kids you know we sort of changed our lifestyle we moved from uk to to the us um for me i i need to i need to have a goal you know one of the things I talked about was kayaking, you know, the River Nile, the world's longest river. It's never been done before from source to sea. So I was that perfect. That's the challenge for me because it's a challenge. It's never been done before. It's um, everything I've, again, I've learned from the bike ride will, will go in, into that. You know, one of the feedbacks I got from that is, yes, it doesn't, and it's sad to say, it doesn't matter how many world records you've got or how many billions you raise for charity. We live in a society where it's like, well, how many followers have you got? Have you done any TV and things like that? So this is where my focus is in the next couple of years is, is building that platform. So then when I then announce the Nile, I've got more eyes to it and we can raise, raise more money. Um, but for me, yeah, the, the Nile will be one and then it'll probably be a, a another. So free, take free sports I've never done before, find the biggest challenges and yeah, leave them up. I love it. How much does a surfboard get out in Southern California these days? Not as often as it should be, actually. Not as often as it should be. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things me and the wife talked about as well. It's really the hardest thing we have in today's world is trying to find that balance, you know, balance of family life and work life as well. And that, that's the one of the hardest things I found about the, the bike ride. It wasn't the actual challenge itself. It was the training. It was that year training. 
because yeah. it's you, you're having to juggle you know like, thankfully for me i've got a great wife who sort of ran all the businesses and you know, paid mortgage and things like that but uh you're still juggling family life and kids but when you're on the challenge you know you haven't got those distractions so so yeah it's um trying to really find that balance and um yeah sort of realize especially during covid you know how quick uh, how precious time is is with the family but i've enjoyed doing things like SAS Australia and things like that. And, they, and they're good as well for me. They're little mini goals to stay fit as well. You need to look good on the screen. You know, you've got to have bigger arms than that and Foxy. You know, you need to get yourself, you know, working out. So they're, so they're nice little mini goals for me, they are, you know, to keep myself motivated. 100%. You know what? Like, I've got a couple of mates who have been on off reality TV, right? So one of my best mates who I do a lot of work with now, I've got a show together. Um, he come off Love Island, so very different experience to SAS. Um, and other mates just come off married at first sight. So they're very wow. um they're very dramatic, high sort of I guess it's mm. high pressure reality TV in the sense that it's really your your character that's tested by the edit um of yeah. a production. But the one thing that I've and I I'll be honest, outside of watching the boys, I've really struggled to watch any of those series because I just don't mm-hmm. like kind of the mantra of the show but the one thing i've loved about sas is people go oh it's crazy it's brutal they're breaking people down Mm -hmm. but you're breaking people to bring them back up and see the strength that they have within inside themselves and and truly who they are at the core and I, i really love that about the show and you can genuinely tell that each one of you as instructors has that goal of bringing out the best in you know in in the people who are undertaking that course and the people who walk in put a burger on their back and then walk out however many days, you know, weeks later. And that's kind of probably become, I guess, something you've attached a bit of purpose to right now is using those lessons that you've learned throughout the course of your life to help other people. And I want to ask you a few questions around that um, sort of some more rapid fire questions that might leave people with some, I guess, some points that they can write down and work on every day. So what would you say is the greatest lesson that you've learned so far in the years of your life? Um, There's one, there's a quote I used, and I used it a lot on SAS Australia, but they didn't, they obviously carefully edit it out. And what, that's anticipation is worse than participation. You know, we, we've talked about, you know, we think about the worst case scenarios all the time. And actually, when I see, I always, <clears throat> I see people before they do the challenges, and especially those that are really sort of psyching themselves up, whether it's on SAS Australia or whether it's students I've, I've taught in the military, um, and then I've always gone to them afterwards and I said, well, actually, on reflection, how bad was that? And like, ah, actually, it wasn't that bad as well. So, you know, as long as you can get through that, um, that personal challenge, you know, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, I mean, well, yeah, probably death. But, you know, anticipation is worse than participation. And it, it's interesting to see people when they look back and think, actually, that wasn't that bad. You know, I'll do it again. You know, like my bike ride, you know, if you ask me when I crossed that finishing line, would I do it again? I'm like, never. Never getting on a bike again, you know, a couple of weeks later, I might go for a ride. For sure. Probably to, to lean into that point, that probably speaks mm-hmm. to a little bit of regret, right? Like mm-hmm. if you anticipate too much, um, you may regret the things that you didn't do. Quite often yeah. you regret the things you didn't do above the things that you did wrong. Um, yeah. Do you have any regrets in your life and anything that you reflect on? Any regrets? No, I don't think I do because I think it, it's, it's carved out the person I am today. You know, I've done things right, I've done things wrong. As long as you learn from those mistakes, you know, it, that's what I say to people as well, you know, you know, the word failure, I hate the word failure because it's almost like it's a stigma to it. You know, I see it as an experience, you know, I call it experience. It's not a failure, but, um, 
But if you make that same mistake again, then you haven't learned from that experience. So for me, you know, I, as you know, in my book, I got into fights when I was a young boy and a soldier, and I ended up in a military prison for fighting. But I only went into prison once. I didn't do it again, or I didn't get caught. You know, one of the two. I learned from that. You know what I mean? So I, I have no regrets because it is it's the carves you out you know it builds up that resilience and that character in you and and um so now so how many kids do you have now so i I have two kids two kids so obviously as a father i can imagine that's your most proud role in in your life right now what's the one thing that you want to leave your kids with like that one legacy that you want them to remember dad by anything nothing's impossible you know, it just hasn't been done yet, you know what I mean? But, you know, but for them, I don't want them to feel, you know, because I've, I've got to really tread carefully that, especially with my son and my, because you know, my wife's a great achiever as well. She, you know, she's got five books coming out this year. She's a big right. philanthropist and entrepreneur as well. And so she's, she's, um, she's doing a lot in, in, in her life. And it's like, you know, today, nowadays with social media, everyone's sort of comparing themselves to other people. And I don't want my children to think that they need to be sort of matching what I did. You know, my son, you know, go feel like he has to go cycle the world's longest road or he has to join the military, you know. So for me, it's like just anything's possible. But, you know, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence, which I talk of, which is the ethos of the special forces, is great ethos. But it's not just in military or in sport, it's in anything that you do. As long as you give it your 100%, no one can ask for any more. That's all I say is, is give it your 100% in everything that you do. I love it, mate. I think for anyone listening to or watching this, I honestly recommend, I'm not, I'm not pissing in your pocket here just because you're on the screen, but the reason I reached out to this man is he's not only talked the talk, but he's walked the walk. Like there are genuine life experiences here that not, not many people will ever have. Um, and you need to read this book or you need to listen to it because there's so many lessons within it that whilst they are extreme, they definitely relate to life and you can take, take plenty of actionable lesson from it. Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, mate. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time and a busy schedule to come and chat to me. Um, it means the world, mate. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Mate, next sure time I'm in Sydney, we'll go for a run, shall we? Mate, 100%, but you might have to slow down. <laughs> Pull my hair oh, back I don't on. know. I'll, I'll, play, I'll play it on my injury. I'll play it on my injury. I'll go on the bike. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair play. Hey, I'm going to make sure that your um, social media links and all the links to your book and everything you do are within the show description. So for everyone listening, go check that out. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Here's Brad. Thank you so much.